Welcome to MFM Speaks Out. This is the official podcast of the nonprofit advocacy organization founded and led by Sarab Sadat Lajavardi called Musicians for Musicians. This monthly podcast is hosted by yours truly, Dawood Kringle. MFM seeks to bring together musicians from all disciplines, styles, traditions, and locations in the cause of their mutual self-betterment. Whether through education, networking, or political action, MFM's ultimate goal is to elevate the work of all musicians to the level of a true profession. We encourage you to get involved by using the hashtags on social media, hashtag unity in the music community, and hashtag making music is a profession. And we encourage you to visit musiciansformusicians.org and to join our organization. If you'd like to become a supporter, you may do so by visiting our website. Again, that's musiciansformusicians.org. Our guest today is Ken Butler. Ken is a musician, experimental musical instrument builder, and visual artist. He builds hybrid musical instruments and other artworks that explore the interaction and transformation of common and uncommon objects, altered images, sounds, and silence. His work combines live music, instrument design, performance art, theater, sculpture, and other forms of visual art. He is internationally recognized as an innovator of experimental musical instruments created from diverse materials including tools, sports equipment, and household objects. Butler has performed with John Zorn, Laurie Anderson, Butch Morris, the Soldier String Quartet, Matt Dario's Paradox Trio, the Tonight Show Band, and the Master Ganawa Musicians of Morocco. He has been featured in exhibitions and performances worldwide, including the Prada Foundation in Venice, the State Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg, New Music America, and the Kitchen, the Brooklyn Museum, Lincoln Center, and the Metropolitan Museum in New York City, as well as in Canada, South America, Thailand, and Japan. His works are represented in public and private collections in Portland, Seattle, Los Angeles, Toronto, Montreal, Washington, Paris, Tel Aviv, and New York City, including the permanent collection of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Before we begin, let's listen to some of Ken's music. This is a piece called Building the Desert Blizzard.
All right, Ken, thanks a lot for joining us. My on, pleasure, uh, Darwin. On uh, MFM Speaks Out. Let's start at the beginning. Uh, what, what inspired you to begin uh, building musical instruments out of everyday objects? Well, it was, a, it, interestingly enough, there was a, a very specific event occurred. It had some history of being a musician, but my focus was the visual arts. Uh, the imagery of the relationship of the human body to a stringed instrument was in my head mm. when, in my basement in Portland, Oregon, I saw a hatchet, a rusted old hatchet, and picked it up and put it under my chin and thought, oh, that kind of would make a really interesting little sculpture slash violin conceptual piece and and I happened to have been given a small half-sized violin so I took the parts of that violin um, and attached it to the to the axe drilled two holes in the end put two tuning pegs in uh, put the put the tailpiece and uh, it, it glued the small fingerboard onto the hatchet and then I happened to have a contact microphone from one of my acoustic guitars. I attached that to the bridge, plugged it into my amp, and I was kind of stunned. Uh, and, you know, tuned it up, and it, it was stunned how much it actually sounded like a violin. Hmm. A crappy violin. But, um, so that's the first thing I made. And then I put that in an exhibition. I began to uh, then kind of... Uh, Look around at other existing objects that 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 bore some relationship to that head neck body configuration of a of a musical instrument, and you know other ob obvious like a tennis racket, and you know it's the most obvious one. What happened was, as I was then selected to be in an exhibition in Portland, Oregon, mm. with a sophisticated curator from out of the state, who came and curated an exhibition. And uh, I, I, she came to my studio and saw all the other things I was doing. And then she said, what are, what are those instruments? And I go, oh, well, I have five or six of those things. She said, well, those are quite remarkable. I'd like to use those in the exhibition. I went, oh, you would? And so anyway, that was part of the motivation was then to, to make more of those for that show. And so this was 1978. But anyway, that's that's how it started, and I thought it was a good way to, to uh, I'd always been interested in finding uh, connections between art and music, and I thought that seemed like a good way to do it. But if if you if the instrument you were playing had a kind of sculptural context, that was an, a, a natural way to bridge the two disciplines. Hmm. It seems to me that uh, your initial inspiration of this and that it uh, came out of perceiving a anthropomorphic essence of, of the guitar you know that it actually resembled something you know the human form yeah yeah it, yeah. yeah sure the head neck body i mean mm -hmm. if you think the frets if you and if you stand a guitar up vertically that you know it's called mm -hmm. the head yeah it's called the neck, the neck and, and the body, body. Yeah, of course, and yeah. then of course frets no are kind of there <laughs> like the, the the spinal column so mm -hmm. which you know when i was i was I was 20 years old in 1968, so mm. you know I was. I saw Jimi Hendrix live three Ooh. times, and so the, so I thought that 
that the guitar itself, just as a shape, mm. was was a symbolically indicative of of this kind of cultural change. You know, the rise of the uh, of the guitar in the twentieth century. I mean, from Francisco Tarrega to to uh, Andreas Segovia and, and sure. Django Reinhardt, Charlie Christian, Absolutely. Les Paul, Jimi Hendrix, Absolutely. and uh, it just uh, I, went went on from there. And uh, and obviously you've uh, combined aesthetics, but the musical functionality of the of the guitar with with sculpture and and visual art. How do you uh, choose? an inanimate object to transform it. Typically, what I would be looking for is an object that just bears some proportional relationship to the body of of any stringed instrument. You're looking for the iconography, iconography uh, of yeah, the guitar uh, within hidden within the shape. Well, and the, right. And my interest really in the objects that I chose was kind of more of a sculptural poetic concern mm. than it was anything functional. The functional part of it was a byproduct of this accidental relationship that it had. So it's kind of more of a poetic statement. Mm. But what happens, interestingly enough, is that if you find something that seems unlikely to produce sound, mm. but yet has this kind of poetic character, and you make an attempt. Working you, out the mechanical you, working, problems of you, building this thing. You discover some quirky accidents at, that happen to have interesting character. It's, yeah, it seems like there's almost an improvisational element to how you uh, go about these instruments. And uh, I, I remember one time when, you know, years ago, I forget how long ago, you uh, showed me your collection of instruments. It was the first time that I saw that. I remember one instrument. If I re- if I recall correctly, it, you made it out of a an axe handle, and the axe handle actually moved. On the, you know, I don't know if you still have that. Thing, yes, but... it's right there. It's oh, actually, there it is. It has an axe handle and a weird paintbrush, and so it's like it's like a whammy. It sounded like Jimi Hendrix, and I was like, wow! (laughs) Oh, that just blew my mind. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) By the way, we're conducting this interview in your home, and um, I'm uh, surrounded by your your collection right now. Um, The music that you play is very experimental, um, but at the same time, it has a very melodic quality. It seems like it, like a lot of your stuff is based on pentatonic musical forms. Uh, you, you mentioned, uh, I think you mentioned blues, and uh, I hear elements of other things like uh, like Arabic, Persian music, uh, um, Japanese music, a uh, number of other things. You know, you're well known in the more in the experimental music circles, but at the same time, there's something very accessible. <laughs> yeah, what's interesting about that is 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 you know I wonder I wonder how how truly experimental I really am, and I've I've given this some thought. It, you know, the the it, it, timbrely speaking, as far as the, the 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 characteristic of the actual sound of the instruments, but the actual 
sort of tunes, I realized that that what I was really interested in was, in a way, mimicking my potential as a vocalist. Mm. And that the music I was always most interested in seemed to be to be like a conversation. And so I realized that carried through to my interest in musical instruments. So most of my, but I have an ear for Middle Eastern music and, mm -hmm. you know, the Spanish flamenco, but mm -hmm. also, uh, you know, that kind of feel, but I don't understand any of it technically. I have an ear for microtonal melody. And, and I guess, so, yeah, I, the, I, the way I structure the songs is, is, is in a very traditional way. I, it occasionally gets a little chaotic, but for the most part, I like that sort of almost a devotional, uh, you know, feel to the, to the music and that have it be, you know, have it mean something. And it's not, uh, I, I kind of want to be in a, heightened state of awareness and you know my self-expression to be contained in a way and not fly off the handle too much or mm -hmm. if or or at little bits at a time uh you had worked with the master ganawa musicians and uh, uh other people like john zorn uh, how, what were some of your experiences like with uh, with them well those two experiences were very different but I, I was fortunate enough to uh, to be uh, signed to uh, John Zorin's uh, Zodic label. Mm -hmm. It was an amazing story. He I, I was uh, I had an exhibition of my instruments at the Metropolitan Museum in the instrument department, which very fortunately, and I happened to bump into John Zorin uh, in. Tower Records. Remember record stores? Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. Oh, they were wonderful places. He was coming in up the stairs. I was coming down, and he said, "Hey, man, I I, I saw you you at the, at the Met, the instruments at the Met, and we had a short conversation." And he he was very positive, and he signed me to his label out of the blue. It completely blew my mind, and I didn't see myself as a recording artist. I saw myself as, you know, perhaps more that video would be a more appropriate medium than audio, even hmm. for me. I performed with him uh, only one time, but at, at the, uh, at the uh, release of the album on Zodic, we performed together at the Knitting Factory um, hmm. on the main stage there, the, the one on Leonard Street, the version hmm. of the Knitting Factory, and that was amazing. The Ganawa situation was very different than that, and... That, that was put together by Elias Kahn, my friend who's an amazing musician, now lives in Berlin. <clears throat> He's a, more than a musician. But he put together this program and saw, just thought that I would, might be able to make a contribution to, to that, the Ganawa. And so with, with the, the vocalist that I was working with, the, the amazing Adina Emerson, she and I collaborated then with the Ganawa musicians, and you know that was a trip. You know, there was a little little meeting in a tent in the back of Exit Art there, <laughs> you know, and a little 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 herbal intake. Oh yeah. Prior okay. to the gig, I can't say that I really completely became um, uh, d deeply connected to that Ganawa rhythm, but I love the sintir, and mm -hmm. that was that was great. But it was, 
you know, it's a little out of my cultural experience. You were very musically active in the uh, uh, downtown music scene in the 80s and 90s. It seems to have dissipated, um, and especially with the last, the, this last year with the COVID thing. Uh, do you think that these days there might be some kind of a lack of adventurousness and musical creativity? Hmm. Well, you know, I, it's, it's interesting because my timing was quite, I thought, quite remarkable. Mm-hmm. I moved to Williamsburg in 1988, so, mm. a, you know, the, a, a venue called The Lizard's Tale, which was one of the very first venues in, in Williamsburg, opened up three blocks away, literally two weeks after I moved here. Mm. And so I was able to, to kind of take part in some of that. But also, the Knitting Factory mm-hmm. opened very early. And if you know that I can in no way think that, that now that there's the equivalent, I mean, that's just, just be, you know, whatever. But yeah. that, that, that was such a, an active kind of situation. And I can't say that I would be a judge now of, of you know, whether things are, that particular scene, like a club like Zebulon, also in my neighborhood here, I felt very connected to that, and I was fortunate to be a part of that scene. And mm-hmm. what, and, and oh, si- yeah, similar to the similar to the knitting factory, the original knitting factory, but right now, uh, I don't really feel like I would be capable of giving a meaningful overview mm. of of things. And of course, you know. One thought about that in general, like, you know, oh, you guys should have been here yesterday. (laughs) Oh, man. You know, like Williamsburg in 88, the the whole waterfront was completely abandoned. We had these huge raves down there with generators and 30 bands playing. You know, I was part of that scene, but I'm not a person who believes that things were necessarily better back back in the day. You know, like when someone someone an old fart like me says, "Oh, kids these days." That's pretty ignorant statement because who cares whether we hear what the you know a certain yeah. era is doing? The, is, yeah, the kids, uh, you know, younger people are going to find their own mode right. of creativity. So what if it's if it doesn't have the you know, characteristics and quality that we deemed to be valuable. Yeah. I can, but I do believe that there is no style of music that there aren't good examples of that oh, I would sure. appreciate. So I'm open-minded to that. Uh, I've, never, I've never given up the relationship that music has to emotion. So yeah. if, if I want to hear, I want to hear that emotional context. It's, yeah. Let's take a break. This is a piece called Axioms. Thank you. 
Uh, you were also uh, known as a as a teacher. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your uh, experiences as a music educator? Aside from the occasional uh, teaching at a at a college level, I did teach for a year at the University of Michigan 
in the art and design department in 2004 or five, or sorry, 304, uh, 0304. Uh, and that was interesting. Uh, I, I enjoyed that. But predominantly, I did work with the Young Audiences program in the five boroughs when I, I'd, be, I'd been doing that for three years in Oregon. And when I moved here, I was able to get on there. But they said, but give us your VHS tape and well, you, you missed the deadline by a month. And I go, I know I didn't get here in time, but, but you know, maybe next year. And then two weeks later, I got a call and they said, mm. Ken, this VHS tape of yours is quite interesting. And we have an opening in the early childhood. So I did an audition and they hired me. And mm. so I basically, within a year, I think I had more gigs than any of the other 200 artists on the roster mm. because mm. word mm. of mouth got out. You know, here's a guy playing a shovel and a broom <laughs> and a, you know, a, a tennis racket. Experiences in the schools was amazing. And I, and I also did a lot of workshops and residencies where I would build a simple instruments with the kids and talk about how, uh, you know, almost every, anything could be a musical instrument and rules. And I kind of retired from that. It was so demanding, you know, the pressure, you know, the, the gig starts at 9.05 and, but, yeah. but I had, but I had tremendous, you know, experience with that. And I, and I got, um, kids would be so excited after the performance, the teacher would, uh, have them write me little letters with drawings of me, and I, I have, you know, my deathbed reading material. Dear Mr. Bugner, you're a genus. <laughs> you know, stuff like that. So oh, that's that was a a, a really great way to you know, and it paid it paid very well. Yeah, it all adds up in the end, I guess. You had had a, a battle with cancer. You want to talk about that? Sure, I don't mind. Um, okay. I'm a, uh, definitely that? a cancer survivor. I, I got uh, diagnosed with, without symptoms, uh, and I went in for a physical, and they said your your LFTs are elevated and got a sonogram, and the person giving me the sonogram gasped graphically in the midst wow. of it. And, and it turns out I had a tumor on my, on my liver, and... Uh, I needed it, and I, they said I had to have a liver transplant. So that was Yikes. really creepy. I got a staph infection from one of the original procedures, and I came very close to leaving the world. Mm. Uh, and that was in, in, in April of 2007. I made it through that, I think, to the surprise of many of the, of the doctors at, at both Bellevue and then at NYU. Thank you very much for uh, saving my life. And... I got my transplant uh, much sooner than I anticipated, and, and that was in August of 2007. And so far, so good. What, what effect that had on, on my music and my creativity, it, it's hard to say in a way. I, it, I don't think it fundamentally shifted my, my, my creative thinking as much as just my commitment to the idea of having the good fortune to be alive on the earth and this amazing planetary system that we're a part of. And uh, I think it, it did give me a certain kind of, the word might be grace about, about my existence and about my relationship to other people on the planet and et cetera, and a commitment to, to try to do the best I could to, to uh, use my potential. It's amazing how 
how in a way now some 14 years later after the, the operation it, it it has perhaps less effect on me overall than I would have imagined when you know during those traumatic times but I was scared shitless basically at the time and uh, because of that I'm projecting that rather than being damaged that I've been improved that mm. I'm that I'm you know that this is getting a young or a younger organ and that I'm that I'm kind of Superman rather than maintaining me it's 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 improving me and I'm projecting oh. that I'm that I'm going to be stronger your music and your your art and your you know performance you know all tied in is very much off the grid yet you've actually you've you've achieved a mark, remarkable success had your work presented all over the world and uh, how do you market and promote your works how did you approach that side of it well you, you know it's interesting that i i don't think of myself as much of a promoter um i never had anybody working for me but but I think it's my nature, if for one thing, is I'm uh, like a, a bit obsessive compulsive. And I don't think it's a, necessarily a disorder on me, but I'm, I'm hyper organized. Mm. And I, I like my, my environment here never gets chaotic or if it, you know, I'm constantly putting things back in their place. And so I, I'm a list maker mm. and I'm a, I'm, I'm, I have a completion compulsion. You know, off the grid is oftentimes what certain institutions are looking for. Mm. You know, and I think that, like for example, if if I if I'm if if I'm part of a music festival, if I'm selected to be a festival because of the music, mm-hmm. there's I think that I benefited from from sticking out from the crowd just because of the the physical appearance of what I was holding and that generated interest and the mm-hmm. fact that I could you know it was it was the the being off the grid kind of was advantageous but you know and, and yes I've been very fortunate to go all over the world and I think it's what I was good at is not so much promoting or sending my putting myself out there but I was very good at responding to even the slightest bit of interest. Hmm. So if I if somebody expressed interest, I could boom, I would send them, you know, now of course we have websites which is way easier, but back in the day in the in the 80s and 90s, you know, the, I would be able to send them a packet, mm-hmm. you know, with photographs and uh, an updated resume and bio and you know, I, I was very good at keeping all that stuff together. It wasn't so much that I applied to a lot of things as much as was able to respond. And I was, you know, the, very fortunate. The first time I applied to the National Endowment for the Arts uh, for a, a fellowship, I got it. It's <laughs> amazing. Wow. So I did investigate what kind of things were, you know, might have been appropriate for me and... Uh, but I, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a, I'm not shy, you know, I'm, I'm a, a bit of a blabbermouth and I think that I, in a, you know, coupled with being very organized and efficient kind of, I think that's probably more of a key than any particular 
marketing campaign, I mean, or anything mm. like that. I know. You appeared on The Tonight Show in 1999. Uh, did that help uh, stimulate your career, sell CDs, get your gigs, uh, increase your, uh, your audience? No. No. The, not the, to the my knowledge. Oh, it's uh, this is this is actually <laughs> this is an incredible story actually because the, they first the, the I did not obviously send my material to the Tonight Show mm. to try to get a gig. Mm. What happened was that you know that I got uh, some coverage that but the Tonight Show saw me something there. And mm-hmm. they contacted me, and they said, we're interested in having you on the show. This was when it was still Johnny Carson, I believe. Really? Way long time ago. Ooh. And they said, and I, of course, at that time, I was kind of excited. Well, that would be pretty good promotion, you know. So I sent them my material, and they responded, oh, well, this isn't really what we were looking for. You're actually a serious artist. They implied that we thought you were just kind of a goofball making weird shit, you know. And so I, I kind of went, well, I mean, it's maybe weird, but it's, I, it's not a joke, you know. Yeah. I, but I can see why you would maybe think that, but it's not. So then some years went by, and they, they, periodically they would, you know, that phone call. Hi, Ken. How are you today? <laughs> this is Sandra from The Tonight Show. How are you? Oh, uh, fine. And so finally, that, that I had performed at the... Uh, the, the ellipsis arts had done that big box set gravicords whirlies and pyrophones oh, yes yes which i was fortunate enough to be part of you know so so as a result there was a concert uh at uh, the world financial center and uh cnn did a little story you know mm-hmm. about it and so as a result i got another call from the tonight show and 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 they, and i said Mm-hmm. If if you'll hold up my CD and announce it, and you'll announce my upcoming performances, I'd be happy to do that. So I did that, and I asked, how many people are watching? She said, 22 million mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. were watching. So after that, I got home, and there were you know 20 messages on my machine. KB, you did pretty good considering, because Jay Leno, you know, was not, it was, he, he didn't, the the band kind of got it, but he, he you know. Yeah. But I don't blame them. It's you know it seems silly what I was doing in a way, but I it's not to yeah. me. Uh, but yet I understand that. So as a result, I got home to those phone calls, and they were all from friends. And I thought, well, you know, what's point oh 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 one percent of twenty two million mm. is a lot. Yeah, and so I thought this would. So I had announced my gig at the Knitting Factory on to 22 million people, Mm. and so I thought, well, that's going to generate some interest. So I got to the gig, and five people came. (laughs) So there you go, and then you know the soon after also the phone rang. Is this Ken Butler from the Tonight Show? Yes, it is. I'm, I'm calling from Phoenix, Arizona. Okay, uh, I said, great. And I got, got a pencil and paper, and I'm thinking, 
you know, Phoenix Arts Council, Phoenix the Performance Center, Phoenix, some, you know, something's going to, you know, I have a question for you. You know, what does it cost for you to come out with your, uh, you know, with, a, with an ensemble of four people in a little exhibition and we'll do a little, you know. Yes, what's the question? Um, how do you put the strings on them things? <laughs> well, um, well, you, you, the <laughs> strings, strings have a, of a ball, guitar strings have a ball on the end. And if you drill a hole smaller than the ball and slip the string through, the ball will, st and then you tighten it the other end with the tuning peg. And that would, so I swear to God, then there's a long pause, long pause. And the guy goes, um, could you glue it? <laughs> no, no, you, you couldn't glue it. There's way too much pressure on the string. Uh, do you have a guitar? I play trumpet. <laughs> And so I said, well, anyway, that's how I do it. As far as I know. <laughs> I was just thinking, you know, how I would react to something like that. I'm yeah. like, I would be like, oh, Yeah, Lord. and so, well, but the other thing is during, I mean, I don't, whatever. I, you know. But anyway, I tried to humor the whole thing. So basically, I don't think that, what's stunning to me is still people think of that it's, it was probably questionable to have done it at all. But still, I have friends of mine who are curators and artists who go, they introduced me as, oh, this is my friend Ken Butler. He was on The Tonight Show. You know, I've been at the Metropolitan Museum and the, the you know, the, the, the uh, uh, you know, incredible, uh, at the Prada Foundation in Venice for the part of the biennial. And so, you know, but anyway, that's the way the culture is. And yeah. You know, it wasn't my finest hour, but whatever. <laughs> I'm not sure. It's a I great would, story, it's though. A, it makes a great story, that's yeah. for sure. One final thing. Pandemic has uh, hit a lot of musicians pretty hard financially, and it's changed things you know, to the point where we've pretty much gone past a point of no return. How did you survive? Retrospectively, it was my, my concept originally was to fuse media together, disciplines together. So the fact that I was doing a diverse group of things always made me somewhat adaptable to whatever the climate situation happened to be. Mm. So if I, I wasn't dependent on any one part of it particularly, mm. and I had kind of, when that happened, I had kind of, I hate the word retired, but I had stopped doing the the school gigs and i have a amazing very uh, affordable living situation miraculously and so and i've always mm. you know been very uh, conscious of spending as little money as possible to try to just maintain my freedom to create mm. so i think it it didn't really have a that profound an effect on i didn't have that much happening gig wise uh, in a in a regular way when that happened, so I took advantage of it to to make a, a new group of of artwork. I just kind of hunkered down, and uh, uh, interestingly enough, also I've sort of been playing a lot of more traditional guitar hmm. lately. Here we are sitting on my couch. This is we spend the bulk of my time, hmm. and you know, try to weather the the isolation the storm, yeah. and. Uh, 
etc. And so it, 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 it wasn't completely out of character at the time. Prior to the pandemic, had kind of stopped being, you know, regularly going to, as Warhol once said, I would go to the opening of an envelope, you know. <laughs> and so I, I stopped really um, some time before that, uh, really making the scene all the time. But it's the worst part of it is the venues that, that went under and places that closed. I think the pandemic has been very challenging. I, you know, I guess the bottom line for me is too, is given my history of, of my health crisis, you know, I go, you know, how bad, how bad can anything be compared to that? Mm. That was so devastating and scary mm. that right now the little inconvenience of, of not being able to be around people is, is, is you know, painful but uh, bearable in comparison. Well, thanks a lot for uh, joining us. Well, thanks for having yeah. me, Dawood. I, oh. I appreciate the interest in what I'm doing. and uh, well, This was a lot of fun, man. <laughs> Great. Well, I, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Thank you so much. I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, to be part of your world. Right. We're happy to have you. Our guest today has been Ken Butler. The subjects we talked about included his beginnings as a musician and an artist, his initial inspiration for creating musical instruments out of ordinary objects, his approach to music, his hybrid instruments tying in with his approach to visual art, his work with the master Ganawa musicians of Morocco and John Zorn, appearance on The Tonight Show, his activity in the downtown music scene in the 80s and 90s, his work as a music educator, his experiences in the business side of making a living as a musician and artist, and his experiences as a cancer survivor. If you'd like to hear more interviews like this one in 2022, hit the subscribe button. Our thanks to you for your support. We've been doing very well. We've found new audiences and brought incredible stories and content. And we plan to do more of this in the years ahead. We've always been consistent. An important step towards the success of the music community is in building a different media. If you would like to help us on that journey, go to musiciansformusicians.org. You can become a supporter and help our work reach even more people. My name is Dawood Kringle, and you have been listening to MFM Speaks Out. Thank you for joining us. We're going to leave you with one final piece. This is a song called Par 12. Uh, 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 uh.